0: You're listening to Face the Jury, a podcast dedicated to confronting the issues of medical malpractice in America, what it is, how to spot it, and how to protect you and your family from medical negligence. I am your host, Lloyd Bell, a medical malpractice trial lawyer representing people who have been harmed by medical negligence. For more information, please visit belllawfirm.com. In the last episode, we talked about the state of the healthcare industry. We looked at some examples of what medical malpractice is, how to spot it, how to protect yourself. And we also talked about all the unnecessary, preventable deaths that occur every year, making medical malpractice the third leading cause of death in America. We talked a little bit about the law, what the standard of care is that healthcare professionals have to follow. When they care for patients. We talked about the best way to safeguard against medical malpractice. It's how we hold accountable doctors, nurses, hospital administrators who break the rules and put profits over patients and harm the community. In this episode, we're going to talk about the case of Ryan Stevens. Ryan died at the age of 25 years old from testicular cancer. We're going to talk about how Ryan went from being a patient to a victim after four visits to his doctors in which they just didn't do the right thing. We want to understand what happened to Ryan, how this young man in good health goes to his doctor and becomes a victim of medical malpractice, and how his life is cut short at the age of 25. We're going to examine some of the issues surrounding medical malpractice. We're going to look at his case and try and understand where the system failures were, that led to his untimely death. We're gonna unpack all of this, what malpractice is, what it isn't, this time on Face the Jury. Let me tell you the story of Ryan. Uh, First of all, Ryan is a big kind of luggy guy, six foot two, 230 pounds, big head of brown hair and beard. And people would describe him as a gentle giant or a big teddy bear kind of a guy. Uh, Ryan worked at the Red Cross. He was a lab technician, uh, but he also volunteered with Red Cross and he would dress up in a red blood suit called Buddy Blood Drop and would go to schools and office buildings to try and get people to donate blood to participate in blood drives. Just a big, nice, lovable guy who was married to his sweetheart, Courtney Stevens, They didn't have children yet. They were planning on starting a family down the road, and Ryan insisted that they wanted to adopt because he was uh, in foster care as a child and believed that there were too many kids out there who needed parents they cared for, and he and Courtney had planned to do that down the road. So that's Ryan's life back up until August of 2016, and Ryan noticed that he wasn't feeling particularly good. He was sort of lethargic had some weakness he felt and just wasn't himself. And he was also concerned because he had a lump on one of his testicles. So he made an appointment with his health company, uh, Kaiser Permanente, and he made an appointment to go in and see his primary care doctor. He goes in on August of 2016, and he meets Dr. Audra Ford, who is a primary care physician. And he explains this to Dr. Ford. He says he has been feeling under the weather, and he tells her that he has a lump on his testicles. Well, Dr. Ford goes into the electronic medical record, the computer terminal, and she documents what Ryan's reporting to her. And she makes a referral to a urologist, which is a doctor that specializes in things involving testicles, the urinary tract system, the kidneys. But she doesn't do any physical examination of Ryan. She does not examine His scrotal contents, physically check and palpate, is what the doctors call it, but feel to see if there's a a lump in his scrotum. Instead, she makes the referral and she says goodbye and she goes off to see the next patient. She also neglected to order an ultrasound test to examine Ryan's scrotal contents. An ultrasound is the gold standard for determining if a man has testicular cancer. It looks at the testes and it can tell if there are any cancerous cells. It's a painless exam. It's very inexpensive. It's if anybody has ever had a child out there and remembers an ultrasound of a baby, it's the same thing. It just looks at the contents of the body. So Ryan goes home and he's feeling pretty good he thinks everything's going to be okay and he's not too concerned and he goes about his business. A couple of weeks later, he comes back to Kaiser and he follows up with Dr. Barry Mason, who is the urologist. And he tells Dr. Mason the same thing that he had told Dr. Ford, that he felt an unusual lump on his testicles. Uh, He didn't put it that way exactly. He said, doctor, I feel a a lump on my balls, is what he said to the doctor. And Dr. Mason examined his testicles with his hands. He felt around to see if he could feel a lump. And Dr. Mason couldn't feel anything. So he tells Ryan, I don't feel anything. So uh, you should just go on home. He gives Ryan some discharge paperwork that gives him some instructions to, quote, self-palpate, which basically means feel your own testicles, and said, you should just monitor yourself and touch yourself, and if you feel anything unusual, come back and see us. Well, Ryan was pretty reassured by this, and he's like, okay, let's not be too serious, and he goes home. About two months later, Ryan is feeling pain in his abdomen area, his stomach area, and he comes back to Kaiser Permanente and sees the first doctor again, Dr. Ford. And he tells Dr. Ford, I've got some some tightness, some, some pain in my stomach area. And Dr. Ford looks at him and says, well, it's probably musculoskeletal. It's probably a strained or a pulled muscle. And she says, you'll be fine. And she sends him home. She does not ask him about the testicular mass. She does not talk to him or ask about the appointment with Dr. Mason. She sends him home. Ryan comes back two months later. This time he's reporting pain in his lower back. He goes back to see Dr. Ford again. Dr. Ford says, oh, you probably pulled another muscle. And she sends him home again and says, take this muscle relaxant you'll be okay. Ryan comes back a, another time. This will be the third visit to Kaiser to see Dr. Ford in January of 2017 at this point. And he's having more pain. Dr. Ford says, well, there must be more muscle sprain or strain. She gives him more muscle relaxant. And she sends him home. Fast forward one month or about five weeks to February. Ryan is home with his wife uh, watching TV. It's on the sofa. And all of a sudden, Ryan is gripped with a pain that his wife describes as the worst she had ever seen. He can't stand up. He's screaming. Courtney calls 911, and the ambulance arrives about 20 minutes later. They put Ryan on a stretcher. They rush him to a different hospital, and the doctor who sees Ryan takes a history. Ryan explains past six months what he's been doing. They order some appropriate tests. They order an ultrasound, and Ryan is determined to have testicular cancer. And the worst part of this story in this case is that the cancer has now spread. It's spread into his liver. It's invaded the cells of his liver, which is a horrible place for cancer to to set up shop. The liver is very vulnerable to cancer, and damage there can be fatal. And in Ryan's case, it was. And about three weeks after he was diagnosed, Ryan became septic, which means he developed a blood infection because of the cancer and the destruction of his organs, and he died at the age of 25. So that's what happened to Ryan. And Courtney had talked to her mother and talked to her other family and really felt like something had gone wrong. She could not understand how her husband had returned to the doctor time and time and time again, and nobody Had ordered any kind of test to figure this out. And she wanted to know was this preventable? Was there something that could have been done to save her husband? Courtney reached out to an attorney in Alabama. Courtney lived sort of close to the Alabama border and knew an attorney in that area. And she reached out to this attorney to ask if he could help her. The attorney did agree to help her. And then he contacted me and my firm and asked if we would. Get involved in the case and help investigate it and see if there is a case, see if the health care that was provided was adequate or reasonable under the circumstances. So that's how we got involved in the case. And like all of the cases that we undertake, the first step is to investigate. We do not ever accuse a healthcare professional of malpractice until we have done our homework and are confident that there has been a violation of the standard of care. So we set about to do that. And the first step, of course, is to get the medical records and see what they show. We requested the records from Kaiser, and they're required to produce them, which they did. We then had those records reviewed by some of the top experts in the country, urologists, primary care physicians, and the reports were all the same, that this was bad medicine. It was bad medicine from the primary care physician, Because we learned that she had never done a physical examination of Ryan, and she had not ordered the ultrasound test that would have detected the cancer much sooner than it was ultimately found. We also learned that the urologist had not done his job. He did not order an ultrasound like he should have. These were the opinions we were getting back from our experts, and it told us that this is a legitimate case, this is a righteous case, and it's a case that should be pursued. We talked with Courtney. She gave us the green light to file the suit on her behalf, and that's how this case started. Now, the important thing about a medical malpractice lawsuit is it's the only way that a patient can force healthcare professionals to talk to them under oath to explain what happened. And that was the big appeal for Courtney, frankly, early on, was that she just wanted to know what happened. She wanted to know the truth. And if the truth was that these doctors did everything right, and they did everything within the standard of care, then that would give her comfort in knowing that and allow her to close this chapter in her life, hopefully, and try to move on as best she could. So we filed the lawsuit. And of course, the defendant answered. We filed the suit against Kaiser Permanente, Dr. Ford, and Dr. Mason. After they filed their answer to the lawsuit, we go through a period of discovery where we can require them to talk to us under oath, what are called depositions. You sit in a conference room with a court reporter, the witness is put under oath, and the attorney is given an opportunity to ask questions, questioning their care, finding out what happened, understanding the facts. So we did that. Dr. Ford told us that she didn't think she did anything wrong. She agreed that she did not do a physical examination of Ryan's scrotal contents. The reason she offered for not doing a physical exam is she said that she offered to do an exam of Ryan's scrotal contents. But as she put it, a lot of men don't want a female physician touching them in their private area. And of course, none of that was documented in the record. I had serious questions whether that was true, frankly. And I talked with Courtney. I said, is Ryan the kind of guy who would go to a doctor for a problem and then tell the doctor not to not to touch him or look at him if it was in a private part of his body. And she assured me that that was just not the case. Ryan was a pretty open guy and particularly when he's going to see a doctor. So that just didn't ring true for us. Listen to Dr. Ford's explanation of her care when she gave her deposition in this case. But it's your belief that you uh, offered to examine Ryan's scrotal contents In that he specifically said, I don't want you to do it because I don't want a a woman other than my wife to see that part of my body or words to that effect?
1: Something to that effect, yes.
0: Um, Why didn't you document any of that in the chart?
1: Well, because I was getting him to the urologist so he could get a formal examination where he would feel comfortable. It really would not have changed anything that I would have done.
0: And did you discuss that with Ryan at all? Did you say... um, I mean, did you, in other words, did you encourage him to let you do your job and examine the patient and say, well, this is this could be serious, and I think it's important that I examine it? Did you give him any, any kind of urgency to it?
1: Um, I can't remember the urgency. I just remember that he declined examination by, uh, by me as mm-hmm. a woman. So uh, it's one of those things where if somebody does not want a woman to examine them, I can't push further.
0: Yes, ma'am. He says you violated the standard of care by failing to order an ultrasound of the scrotal contents after you learned of Ryan's initial and subsequent complaints of a testicular mass.
1: Well, I'm not a urologist, and again, I was unable to examine anything, but I felt that within the standard of care, getting him to the specialist to determine if any imaging was needed, then that was still within the standard of care is to get them to get them the proper care.
0: But did you offer Ryan the option of having an ultrasound done of his scrotal contents?
1: No, because I'm not a urologist and I don't know what I would be looking for.
0: Well, do you, is it within your scope of practice to order an ultrasound of the scrotal contents so that you can, I mean, if, you, if the patient reports a scrotal mass, is that within your scope of practice?
1: Um, not really. Again, if um, scope of practice also includes comfort, and because in his particular case, I don't know what was actually going on, I'd rather have him seen by a specialist to determine if anything needed to be done.
0: I asked Dr. Ford, well, why didn't you order an ultrasound? Uh, you've got a young man, and just to make an important point about testicular cancer, a young white male is the highest risk group for testicular cancer of any other ethnicities, of any other uh, groups. If a man comes in from between the ages of 15 to 30 and is reporting any kind of a lump or a bump or anything unusual in their scrotal contents, that is presumed to be cancer. That is cancer until it is proven otherwise because it is a very treatable disease. If testicular cancer is detected early, the cure rate is over 95%. So 95 people out of 100 live a full, healthy, productive life and are completely cured of testicular cancer as long as it's detected. If it's not detected, it metastasizes, which means it spreads and it lands on distant organs in the body. It can go to the brain. It can go to the liver, as it did in Ryan's case. It can go to the heart. Uh, There's no good place for cancer cells to travel in the body. And it can lead to just devastating, catastrophic outcomes like it did in this case. So we asked Dr. Ford, why didn't you order an ultrasound? She said, well, I sent them to a specialist. Um, I'm I'm not a urologist. I'm a primary care doctor. Uh, And that seemed reasonable to me, frankly, um, when I was taking her deposition. That seemed reasonable for her to send them to a specialist within the group, a urologist, and have the urologist pick up that care. So we then move forward in the discovery and we took Dr. Mason's deposition. Here's Dr. Mason in audio from his deposition in this case. And the standard of care would require you to order an ultrasound to evaluate this
2: uh, suspicious firm mass. True. I think that the standard of care is not something that's written down, so I'm not sure.
0: Okay, did you order an ultrasound to evaluate the scrotal contents? I did not. Why not? It was not indicated. Did you offer Ryan the opportunity to have an ultrasound to evaluate his scrotal contents?
2: We discussed his examination together, and with... He is showing me the normal left epididymis, which is a structure outside the testicle that was normal in every apparent way and no other abnormality discovered in the scrotum, no other unsettled issue. I did not order an ultrasound. It was not indicated. Right. And my question to you is, did you
0: offer... Ryan the opportunity to have an ultrasound to evaluate his scrotal contents. Did you ever offer him that possibility? I did not order an ultrasound in this case. I didn't ask if you ordered it. I said, did you offer Ryan the the opportunity to receive the benefit of an ultrasound to evaluate his scrotal contents?
2: I did not uh order the test for him because I didn't think it was indicated and I did not um, then offer the adjunctive examination.
0: Did you discuss the, the possibility of ultrasound with Ryan?
2: No. I don't. I did not. Um, why not? In my opinion, after doing the thorough history and physical examination with his self-corroboration of what he was feeling to be a normal male examination, uh, the ultrasound was not indicated, in my opinion.
0: Dr. Mason suggested that since he, Dr. Mason, could not feel the lump that Ryan was reporting, that there was no reason to do an ultrasound, that it would not be required under the evidence, under the medical evidence. And of course, our experts said the complete opposite. They said, are you crazy? This is a young man reporting a lump. It is presumed to be cancer unless proven otherwise. And you can't prove it's not cancer just by a physical touching. You have to use the test, use the tools available to see if it's cancer or not. That's what our experts said. So there was a dispute, and that's very common in these medical malpractice cases. And that's how we proceeded in the case. What broke the case open however, was a deposition of Kaiser Permanente's IT specialist, their information technology specialist, who gave us a tour of the electronic medical record. Uh, we had set up a deposition of the IT specialist and required him to bring computer, a laptop computer, so that we could see the electronic medical record, which is known as EPIC, is the type of software that's used. And see how it worked so that we could understand better why Ryan was not tested for testicular cancer, why he didn't get an ultrasound. So we sat down at a deposition and had the laptop open so that we could see the software as the Kaiser official explained it. And there were two pieces of the software we wanted to see. We wanted to see, first of all, Ryan's medical record as it actually looks in the electronic record. And that was consistent with the papers that had been printed out and we reviewed. But the other and more important thing we wanted to see is we wanted to see what information was contained in the software that might have a bearing on Ryan's treatment. So, for example, I asked the doctor, the IT specialist, he was a doctor, but an IT specialist, I asked him, well, what happens when a order is put in when a doctor orders a referral to a specialist such as a urologist. And he said, well, we can, I can show you because he had a sort of a dummy module, a a fake patient. So he could demonstrate the different functionality of the software. So he said, well, look, we have this patient, John Doe, if the primary care doctor enters the order, this is how she would do it. And he showed me which fields that information went in. Well, he enters that information into the software. I saw him do this, at the deposition. And then another screen opens up where you enter the name of the specialist and the reasons for sending to that specialist. And when you enter that information, something else popped up, practice guidelines. And what are practice guidelines? These are medical information for the doctors to refer to as they're treating patients, to sort of help them, remind them of things to think about and things to do in caring for a patient. So what we learned is when Dr. Ford entered the order for Ryan to go see a urologist based on his report of a testicular mass, a a lump in his testicles, there is a practice guideline that kicks up for Dr. Ford to review. And it says specifically, in this situation, order an ultrasound test. And the reason you do that is so that when Ryan goes to see the urologist, the urologist will already have this very important test done so that he can compare the test, look at the test, and also examine the patient at the same time. So where Dr. Ford and Dr. Mason were both saying, oh, we don't need to do an ultrasound. It's not indicated. The practice guidelines that they adopted and that are built into their own electronic medical record say the opposite. They say, no, you do do an ultrasound. And then explains the reasons for it. That helped break the case open because it demonstrated that the defense was just not being honest. These doctors were not being honest in their defense of saying they didn't have to order an ultrasound when their own healthcare record system demonstrated that they did. So there are two problems with the positions taken by Dr. Ford and Dr. Mason. Uh, First of all, they were both saying, we didn't have to order an ultrasound. Uh, It's not required uh, by the standard of care. It was not indicated by the evidence. And that just wasn't true. We revealed through the Epic software, we revealed that their own guidelines required an ultrasound. But here's what's interesting. If we had relied solely on the medical records as produced by Kaiser, we never would have known about these practice guidelines. It was only by going in and insisting that we get a real-time inspection of the electronic medical record, the EPIC software system, that we even became aware of these practice guidelines. And frankly, they broke the case open. We mediated the case after we had finished discovery and after these facts came to light. Kaiser was represented by an excellent, experienced defense lawyer who was able to uh, talk to the decision-makers at Kaiser, who had flown in from California, we were able to reach a financial settlement for a confidential sum that allowed all the parties to put this case behind them. So this case touches on a number of important points. I saw this case and viewed this case early on as a case of clear medical malpractice. Uh, Of course, the defendants did not. They found their experts to say, no, this wasn't malpractice. Our doctors did everything just right. And that's where the case stood and likely would have gone to trial, except we were able to discover these practice guidelines in their electronic medical record system that undercut significantly their defense of we didn't do anything wrong. But what really strikes me about this case is how unnecessary deaths can occur due to medical malpractice. I mean, Ryan was just you just know this kid. Every high school has that kid. Ryan was in the marching band. He was goofy. He liked to dress up for Halloween. He's the guy who may play Dungeons and Dragons when he was a kid. Um, just a harmless, loving guy who had so much to offer this world. And how is it that that guy who had good health insurance with uh, Kaiser Permanente, How does he fall through the cracks? How is it that they just don't decide to do a simple test and and take care of him? Well, we had talked earlier about what leads to medical malpractice. And two of the main issues that I saw in Ryan's case are, number one, the failure to communicate between healthcare professionals. We learned in Ryan's case that the primary care physician, Dr. Ford, never spoke to the urologist. Never and the urologist never spoke to her. The only way they communicated about Ryan's case was through what they decided to type into the electronic medical record. So when Ryan followed up with the urologist and the urologist said, well, I don't feel a lump, just self-examine and pay attention and come back and see us if if you need to. When he sort of dismissed Ryan in that way and then Ryan did come back with abdominal pain, back pain. There was no communication between Dr. Ford, the primary care doctor, and the urologist. Nobody's connecting the dots. Anybody who's got any medical professional who understands testicular cancer knows that it is a very concerning sign if you have pain that arises in different parts of your body because that can indicate a metastasis of cancer traveling. But there was no communication whatsoever. And they both testified to that at their depositions. And what struck me When they said that, when I asked them, did you you know, did you ever call Dr. Mason and tell him about this patient? They looked at me like I was I was kind of crazy. (laughs) Like that's just not the world we live in in medicine. They danced around this issue, but it became real clear to me that they just felt like they didn't have time to pick up the phone and talk to each other. These are volume practices. Lots of patients per day go through these these offices and, and see these doctors. And it would take time for a doctor to pick up the phone and just actually discuss a patient with the specialist that she's referring him to. And and neither one saw the need to do that. And they thought that was okay. So we hope that this case has helped educate at least the doctors involved in this case, in Ryan's case, to the need for communication. Because that is where I would estimate over 80, maybe 90% of malpractice occurs when doctors just are not talking to each other and they're not passing on critical information that doctors need to know about their patients. So the failure to communicate was a major theme in this case, and a major system failure. So if you are seeing a doctor, if you are sent to specialists following up with with different doctors, it is really important that these doctors communicate with each other. And, And beyond simply making a note in the record and assuming the next doctor is going to read that note, and appreciate how significant that note is. Doctors are really, really smart folks, and they try hard. Most of them are extremely diligent and caring about their patients, but they're also human beings, and there's nothing that can substitute a personal phone call from one doctor to another and say, hey, um, Dr. Johnson, for example, uh, your patient was here. Let me tell you what my impressions are. What do you think? Let's talk about this. But that didn't happen in Ryan's case. Uh, Ryan was treated by individual doctors who didn't talk to each other. And that was one of the factors that led to this horrible outcome. One of the most important consequences of medical malpractice lawsuits is they change behavior. When doctors, and particularly hospitals and healthcare corporations, when they realize that there can be a very large financial consequence by not following the rules of good medicine, not following the standard of care, that is what changes behavior because they don't want it to happen again. And I've seen this time and time again in cases we've had where there have been system failures exposed through the litigation, mistakes, weaknesses, that hurt patient safety, once there's a substantial verdict or a multi-million dollar settlement or some significant consequence, only then does it get the attention of the decision makers. And they say, well, you know what? We're not going to do medicine this way anymore because, number one, it's going to hurt our pocketbook if we continue doing this. Once they are on notice of a system failure, it's hard for them in the next case, if they haven't fixed that failure, it's hard for them to come in and say, well, we didn't know this could happen when it's already happened. That's where juries get really upset and they reflect their unhappiness with that situation in their verdict. So, there are three lessons that I take away from the Ryan Stevens case. Uh, number one is the importance of communication between healthcare professionals, number two is how quickly a bad medical mistake can lead to a horrific outcome. Ryan, went from a healthy, normal, active, working husband and six months later, he's dead at age 25. Malpractice can have immediate and very fast acting consequences. And number three is the need for awareness specifically about testicular cancer. And if anybody who's listening to this detects anything unusual, on one of their testicles, some sort of lump, something that doesn't feel right. It is important to get to your doctor and tell the doctor that you want to make sure that this is not cancer and have the doctor do an ultrasound. Courtney never would have realized what had happened to her husband. She never would have understood the failures that led to her husband's death without a thorough, detailed and diligent investigation of the medical records, both the written medical records and the electronic record. Join us next week as we look at some cases that are not as straightforward as Ryan's. Face the Jury is produced by Lloyd Bell and Adam Kincaid, executive producer Lauren Shankman and audio engineer Joel Edwards. I'm your host Lloyd Bell. Join us as always next week on Face the Jury.